Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Mark Dollinger for an important conversation about the history of Black Jewish relations in the 1960s and its ramifications and relevance for the continued struggle for civil rights and racial justice today. Mark Dollinger holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University. He's the author and editor of numerous books, including Quest for Inclusion, Jews and Liberalism in Modern America, and most recently, Black Power, Jewish Politics, Reinventing the Alliance in the 1960s, which we'll talk about today. Mark's book, Black Power, Jewish Politics, reframes the place of Jews in the civil rights movement and the rise of black power in the 1960s. As he argues, American Jews tend to have a filiopietistic and self-congratulatory historical memory of these events, emphasizing the place of Jews in a Cold War liberal consensus and as allies in the fight for civil rights prior to the breakdown of this Black-Jewish alliance with the rise of the Black Power movement. Mark doesn't deny that this alliance existed, but he offers a new way of thinking about it and its legacy. He argues that Jewish leaders recognized the limits of white allyship early on and later supported Black Power, both in itself and also as an example of how to pursue Jewish empowerment. As Mark argues, the emergence of Jewish ethnic identity activities in the 70s, including Jewish day schools, the publication of the Jewish catalog, Jewish studies courses, just to name a few, actually paralleled the broader context of American life in which various ethnic groups drew from the examples of black power to chart their own course within the framework of identity politics. The thing is, the struggle for civil rights and racial justice is not concluded in this country. So Mark's book is about the past, but it's not entirely history. As a result, it offers one starting point for rethinking the relationship between Jews and civil rights, both historically speaking and today. The question about whether Jews are white or are perceived as white, a very complex set of issues, as well as the ramifications of all of this within the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. As we'll get into today, this book and its argument offers a pathway towards rethinking this history, the place of Jews within it, and what it might mean to be an ally in the fight for social and racial justice today. This is the first episode of the 2020-21 academic year, and I want to thank you for tuning in, especially right now when there aren't really any in-person campus or community events, and most academic conferences are online or canceled. I think it's so important that we continue to foster an intellectual community and have these kind of engaging conversations about how 
and why history matters. We have a fantastic lineup of guests coming up, and I hope that you'll listen in. You can subscribe to get the new episodes at jewishhistory.fm slash subscribe. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mark Dollinger, where we think through what we can learn from history, both in terms of our assessment of the past and also our place within the present. So hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm really glad that you can join us for, I think, a really important and relevant conversation. I've read through the book. I think it's a fantastic book. I think that you're offering a revision of some of the ways in terms of how people have understood, especially um, Jewish people have understood the question of the history of Black Jewish relations. You maybe want to get us started off by saying a brief word about your argument in the book and what it is that you're putting forward. Yeah, sure. When I was growing up as a white suburban Jewish kid in in L.A., I learned that the civil rights movement was the story of a black Jewish alliance that brought heroic Jews to the South, where they fought on behalf of racial justice until the mid-1960s, when the rise of black militancy, of black power, of anti-Semitism from the black community purged Jews and ended what was a wonderful alliance. When I looked in the archives, though, and began researching the book, I discovered an entirely different story emerging. Instead of sort of the Dr. King, Rabbi Heschel arm-in-arm narrative that I was raised on, I found that even white male Jewish leaders of national Jewish organizations understood as early as the 1950s that there was a fundamental difference between being white and Jewish in America and being black in America. And they, in fact, knew that there would be limits to the black Jewish alliance. And uh, that was my first sort of shocking discovery in terms of revising what I knew growing up. It's a really jarring perspective for a lot of people, Jewish people, I want to say, who grow up thinking about and being taught about this alliance within the civil rights movement and the involvement of Jews within the civil rights movement. So I think that what you're offering here is a almost a radical perspective, a radical revision of how we understand the role of the Jews in the civil rights movement. I'd like to frame it as a both and, and it's really important first to acknowledge the extraordinary American Jewish participation in the civil rights movement and in social justice causes. When you look at uh, white ethnic groups in America, Jews are the most liberal, progressive, democratic party now voting group. Only African-Americans vote more. And by that standard, I think there's justifiable pride amongst American Jews for the work that we have done. And those perspectives have been covered in the historiography already. What's also true is even as many heroic Jews did go to the South to register voters and in some tragic cases, of course, gave their lives, most American Jews didn't. And there became almost sort of in the North a sense that watching on TV what the Jewish heroes were doing extended to them as well. So what my book is trying to do is take a broader more inclusive look of, of all American Jews, or at least all white American Jews. And now we get to see more complexity to what's going on. So I don't see this as, as undermining the existing truth about Jewish involvement, 
but I see it hopefully deepening it and making it more complex. Why do you think that it's important to offer this complexity to the narrative? Uh, first of all, it's surprising in and of itself. Um, there's something that, that academic historians recall historical memory, which is what actually happened and what we remember or think happened, or what we were taught happened is often different. In fact, there's a history of historical memory, which says the way in which we choose to remember or forget or analyze or spin, if you want to be more cynical, our historical past actually is meaningful in and of itself. So what I found when I was surprised to find was that as early as the 1950s, Jewish leaders were calling out the limits of white Jewish liberalism and the inevitability of of African-American autonomy and what would become the rise of black power. So at the very time that the public narrative was consensus, arm in arm, what I lovingly call peace, love, and Bobby Sherman, everything's great. At that moment, even the Jewish leaders who were engaged in that kind of consensus politics understood its limits. That's the part that we've forgotten, I think, over the last 50 or 60 years. And I think it's really important, especially in today's climate, for us to understand better that it was always deep and complicated and intense, and we knew about it at the time. And then the real story is how in journalism and historiography and in public memory, we've sort of forgotten that element until we've remembered it again with the National Reckoning on Race. I think there's so much to dive into here and to unpack. You mentioned the distinction between the historical events that actually happened and the way that they are remembered. Uh, And you've highlighted some of the ways in which the popularly held historical memory about Black-Jewish relations, especially as it is perceived within the American Jewish community, is perhaps different from the actual events. But to what extent is this some kind of scholarly navel-gazing about saying, okay, there's a difference between what is remembered and what is actually happening. Why is it important to revise this received historical narrative or received historical memory? It's important because our definition of ourselves is framed in some measure by how we look at our history. And if it turns out that the history we've been relying upon to define ourselves was different then I think it forces us to wrestle with ourselves. The book is called Black Power, Jewish Politics. To be honest, it's not about black power. It's about Jewish politics because it challenges an historical narrative which forces white American Jews to challenge their sense of themselves and a sense of their history and a sense of their place. I think part of what you're getting at here is the complex history of identity politics and how the identity politics, for instance, within the African-American communities and also within the various Jewish communities uh, in the U.S. were in relationship with each other. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit more on how looking closely at this history can help us to understand the emergence of identity politics, broadly speaking, and just in general, the political developments of the past 50 years or so, uh, within which identity politics have played such an important role. Yeah, so this this is a story of uh, mostly white liberal Jews. In the 1950s, at the time when the Martin Luther King Jr.-led civil rights movement was all about everybody getting along, crossing racial lines, 
crossing religious lines. That was attuned to what was a larger trend among American Jews in the 50s, which was just to mix in and get along in what were white Christian suburbs. And I argue that it was the Black Power movement, which um, opened up identity politics to lots of ethnic, gender, racial groups. I cover Jews because I'm an American Jewish historian, but the Mecha, the Latinx activist group came out of this period, second wave feminism in the early 1970s, the American Indian movement, um, another American Indian group uh, took over Alcatraz Island in this time period. So all of a sudden, rather than having to live in the suburbs and reduce your identity as a Jew as much as possible to get along, it now became cool and hip and popular to literally go into the streets to express your identities, whatever they were. And American Jews followed that lead. So the irony is at the same time, Blacks and white Jews split in the civil rights movement with the rise of Black power. We actually saw a reinvention of its strategies by American Jews in order to be more public with their Jewish ethnicity. Yeah, part of what you're doing here, which is so interesting, from an intellectual perspective, is I think that you are placing you know, various components of Jewish, as you said, ethnic revival within a much broader context, right? It's not just about the Jews. It's about the context in which they're living, whether we're talking about the creation of the Jewish catalog, whether we're talking about the formation of day schools uh, and all sorts of other things as it relates to the really broad social, cultural, political context in which American Jews were living. I have a scene to, to depict for you. After the 1967 Six-Day War, uh, the University of California system created an education abroad program, junior year abroad, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And uh, there were a group of young Berkeley undergrads who wanted, in the spirit of the late 60s, to rediscover their Jewishness, to be perhaps more authentic and real Jews. So they got on airplanes, they flew to Israel, and uh, they were ready to start classes at Hebrew U. Well, they show up with blue jeans, bell bottoms, long hair, beads, marijuana, and the whole sort of Berkeley in the 60s <laughs> scene. And while they self-perceive as real Jews, you know, taking the next step on their Jewish journeys by going to live in, in Israel, they're met by young Israeli undergraduates at Hebrew University, months out of battle close-cropped hair, conservative dress, and a whole lot mature in life. And the Israeli students looked at these Berkeley undergrads and called them freaks, right? So if we can imagine the picture of the Israelis and the Berkeley Jews and the question of what is Jewish there, I would argue for the Berkeley students, their physical appearance was 1960s America. And their interest in even rediscovering their Jewish roots by going to Israel was a Black Power-inspired American phenomenon. So at that moment, they were becoming more and more American and even secular at the time they self-perceived themselves to be returning to Judaism. You know, I think that we've been talking a lot about the history of the 60s, you know, and, and its repercussions. Um, but in a lot of ways, this history isn't really over yet. So shifting gears a little bit, what do you think that this history that you're looking at in terms of the history of Jews, the civil rights movement, black power, and all of that, what does that teach us uh, about this continuing history 
of the struggle for civil rights and equality, which of course is not entirely over yet, you know, it's still ongoing. You know, what does it tell us about the role of white allies in this continuing struggle? And particularly when we think about the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the various protests, particularly this year. Thank you. There are a lot of surprises and ironies in that. I think I start by saying organized Jewish leaders who were for the most part older white men got it. They understood the limits of whiteness, the limits of liberalism, what privilege had meant to American Jews. They knew there was a fundamental difference between what it was to be white and Jewish in America and what it was to be black in America. And because they knew that in the 1950s and the 1960s, and because they called out for a black power movement, where we are today comes as no surprise. So the the first thought is when we go back to the sources, we, we actually find out how deep systemic racism is and how limiting it has always been. And even when we we thought we were on the right path, as it were, even those on the path understood how challenging it is. So in a certain way, between the mid-60s and recent times, it has been a bit of collective amnesia. And what's happening now in Black Lives Matter is we're getting a whole lot of Jews in Jewish organizations and outside of them who are revisiting um, a lot of the early literature that I found for the book in calling out the fundamental differences between the two experiences. So you're saying that the recent conversations are kind of rediscovering the limitations of white allyship. That's correct. There was a notion among, well, in the historical memory, it starts with white Jews helped the civil rights movement. And then very quickly, you know, when I give public lectures, I'm, I'm getting feedback. White Jews led the civil rights movement, which was not the case at all. And the notion of white allies, at least in our historical memory, puts white Jews more and more into the center. And that is quite objectionable, as much of America knows today. What I found in the sources were white Jewish leaders who understood that they needed to move out of the center. They understood that in the case of civil rights Black leaders need to lead Black organizations, and the role of the, of the white ally, of the white Jewish ally, is to be in support of that movement. And I think now we've come back to that kind of awareness. As we look, for instance, at your book and at your broader research on this, in what ways do you think that historical perspective, historical nuance, historical understanding can help people to better understand and engage with uh, what's going on you know, these days. You're talking about how people, particularly you know, white people, uh, you know, white Jews, and of course, as we'll get to, not all Jews are white, but white people sort of stepping out of the way and letting black people lead center stage in terms of what's going on. But is there more to it than that? How can historical understanding, historical analysis help us to deal with what's going on these days? Yeah, this is a two-step process. The first process is facing our failed historical memory, our incorrect historical memory, and letting it go. That's a really hard thing to do because so much of the mythology that's been created around uh, white Jewish involvement in civil rights is aggrandizing. It elevates the role, and nobody wants to acknowledge or admit that their 
you know, religious groups' role was less than they thought. And of course, for those Jews who were involved, they were totally and fully involved and, and, and in so many cases were heroic, but that wasn't the case for most American Jews who internalized their experience as if it was their own. That's the hard part. The redemptive part is once you can move through that and once you can go back and understand the depth and breadth of systemic racism and the way in which white Jews have more than any other white ethnic group been supportive and carry that to the contemporary period, it offers pathways and it offers guidance um, which will hopefully, you know, get us closer to racial justice than we are if we hold on to a narrative that that simply wasn't true. I mean, I think one way to to think this through a little bit more, if we can continue down this this line of a discussion, is in what ways does the history matter when we think about the contemporary struggle for racial justice? One of the arguments by those who are uh, having a challenge at this moment is whether systemic racism even exists. And then if it exists, what it looks like, what it means for white America in order to undo it. So I think by looking at the history, it is powerful evidence, not only that systemic racism exists today, but that it has existed, you know, my studies from the 1950s. So for the last 60, 70 years, and then ultimately, of course, we can go back to 1619 and find its origins. So I think it gives strength and credence to how deep how broad and how powerful racism has been woven into the fabric of American society. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at this set of issues, it's impossible to escape the history, right? In, in as much as, you know, as you said, the systemic racism within America uh, stretches back to its founding, you know, with the origins of the slave trade and, and so on and so forth. But one of the questions that I think that a lot of people are grappling with uh, and this is historians, but also non-historians, scholars and non-scholars as well, is what is our place within this history? Where do we stand? And so on. And and this is something that I touched upon in the episode that I did with Michael Rothberg a few months ago, where we talked about the question of to what extent people who themselves were not even necessarily alive during, say, for instance, the history of slavery, Jim Crow, are still implicated in this history. And I think that part of what you're doing here in the book is engaging with this question of how is it that American Jews understand themselves and understand their part in this history? Do American Jews understand themselves as allies in support of the movement, drawing on the memory of Heschel, for instance, and other Jews who were involved in the civil rights movement? Or do they understand themselves to be part of something else. And I think that looking at this history and looking at what actually happened then, as opposed to what people were taught, you know, say, for instance, in religious school, is a major step towards grappling with the question of where we fit in this history, which is still not yet finished. Um, first, privilege is conferred, which means if one enjoys the privilege of their whiteness, and I'm speaking as a white Jew, white presenting Jew, we don't actually have to have been around as a community in 1619 in order to benefit from the systems that have been created over the centuries. So the first part of it is that, you know, my ancestors came from Eastern Europe, you know, in the turn of the 20th century, as many American Jews did. And clearly that was in the post-slavery time. So the argument could be, well, it doesn't have anything to do with me, except 
American Jews on these shores rose astronomically up the social mobility ladder. The second generation American Jews did a whole lot better than their immigrant parents. The third generation were pretty much going to college if they wanted, even graduate school and into the professional careers. So the challenging part of understanding systemic racism, especially for for later immigrant groups, is understanding that it's not actually just about slavery. It's about the system that created slavery and about the way in which that system continues to benefit some people rather than others. And I wanted to add as well, American Jews, in this case, white Ashkenazi American Jews, have an unusual American experience. It may not be unique, but we as a group have suffered from anti-Semitism on American shores. And sadly, in, in the last few years, we have seen an uptick in domestic anti-Semitism and most tragically, of course, the shootings in Pittsburgh and Poway. We have had the worst anti-Semitism in American Jewish history in this contemporary period. So for many American Jews, they make the, the correct argument that Jews do not enjoy the privilege because they are Jews and because of anti-Semitism. And we should also talk about Orthodox Jews who present as Jews through wearing a kippah or through Jewish clothing. They are facing violent attacks um, because of anti-Semitism against Jews. So white Jews at the same time are benefiting and are privileged in a racist economy and society at the same time that Jews are being victimized as Jews. It's a difficult status to hold at the same time, but both are true. Yeah, I mean, I think that this leads us into a much bigger conversation that I think goes far beyond what's just in your book, but it's closely related to it, which has to do with the question of whether or not Jews in America are white. And I think as we're going to touch on a little bit, of course, not all Jews even present as white. You know, the American Jewish community has has always been diverse and it has become more and more diverse uh, in recent years. But I think that, that when we look at the history of American Jews and when we think about the involvement of Jews in the civil rights movement, for instance, uh, in the 1960s, there's a very complex dynamic about the question of Jews and whiteness. And this is something that I talk about with my students uh, when I talk about modern Jewish history as a whole, one of the arguments that I make uh, to my students is that in the course of modern times, and particularly in the U.S. in the 20th century, we have the process of what I call Jews becoming white, uh, which is to say that Jews begin in a kind of a peripheral position. You know, this is both true globally speaking, you know, Jews being persecuted in various parts of the world, and also in the U.S., Jews being excluded in many ways from social and economic circles of power. And this, of course, changes over the course of time, you know, up through the 20th century as Jews increasingly enter into the hallways of power, the uh, sort of circles of whiteness. And, you know, this, of course, also is the case in Israel, where, uh, you know, in Israel and Palestine, where Jews start out as a stateless people, uh, you know, as a people who are victims of genocide. And then ultimately, we have Jews as the state power in Israel and, and an occupying power as well. So the history of the civil rights movement is one component, I think, you know, as it has been received by people of Jews who want to see themselves as white allies, but also as having an affinity to the black community. And so I think that part of the debate about whether or not Jews are white or not, it's complex because we can talk about, you know, are Jews actually white? Are Jews perceived as white? Do Jews present as white and have the benefits of doing so? Right. But it's a very complex development 
as you think about the history of, you know, as you say, black power and Jewish politics, how does this help us to understand the complex question of whether or not Jews are white, so to speak? Yeah, here I rely on the research of my colleagues, uh, Eric Goldstein at Emory and Karen Brodkin, who's now retired from UCLA. I'll open by arguing white Jews are white. <laughs> uh, and my evidence for this, and I've said this over the years, if I walk into a 7-Eleven, I'm not going to get followed by the security card. I mean, that's my basic standard for, for if you're white. That said, the question is incredibly complex because race is socially defined which means that the color of your skin does not necessarily define your racial status. For example, when the Irish first immigrated to Boston in the 1840s after the potato famine, they were actually called the Black Irish, even though they had white skin. Over time, the Black Irish became white and were considered part of the larger white society. As Professor Goldstein argues, the same situation occurred for Jews. That is, we were not considered white. These are white presenting Jews. We're not considered white in the you know, late 19th, early 20th century. And as Professor Brodkin argues, only after World War II in the 1950s were Jews included in white America. So here's the irony that Professor Goldstein uh, pointed out. If the Black Jewish Alliance was about Jews who are persecuted and Blacks who are persecuted coming together in solidarity with their common oppression, it would have happened a generation or two earlier when Jews actually were not considered white. But it was only after Jews achieved middle-class white status that they had the ability to reach then across racial lines in order to do that. I think part of what's going on here, again, is this question of how white-presenting Jews today, right, including Jewish institutional leaders, Jewish communal leaders, look back on the history of the civil rights movement in terms of their own understanding of whether or not Jews are white, right? Because people can look back on the the conciliatory history of, of Jews and blacks within the early civil rights movement and say, okay, right, Jews are opposed to the white oppression of black people because Jews are not white or something like that. And that Filiopietistic history, uh, you know, this kind of self-congratulatory history um, is part, I think, of ways in which Jews, of course, want to see themselves in a positive light in terms of the history of civil rights, but also don't want to necessarily see themselves as part of the historic oppression of Black people. So before I do this, I just have to offer a personal professional thank you for using the words filiopietistic. That is an inside joke in my entire career. And I, and I just want to ask that it get put onto the podcast because I'm going to have a lot of former students who are going to want to listen to it just to hear the word filiopietistic. So thank you. I'll leave that whole thing on the podcast. <laughs> well, I'll just say um, that for myself, the question of filiopietism, you know, this kind of self-congratulatory, self-aggrandizing history is really important as we try to understand the American Jewish experience as a whole. Yeah. Without getting too deep into the weeds of the historiography, the question ultimately is, how do people understand their own history? What is the role of that history? And the, I think the importance of thinking about the question of Jews in the civil rights movement as filiopietistic or not is important as we think about how that history is used and put to use within this debate about what's going on right now, within this debate about the status of Jews in the U.S., you know, are they white or not, etc. 
Thank you. This point is at the center of the myth-making of Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. Typically, there are three arguments given in this mythology. Argument one is the history argument. That is, Blacks and Jews have a common history of oppression, therefore they'll come together. Except it's not true. As an African-American colleague, a sociologist of race and ethnicity told me, and he used to be the, the chair of the Black Jewish Alliance of New Jersey, so he'd go to a lot of Passover seders. You know, he said, if another one of my Jewish friends tells me that they know what it's like to be a Black man in America because they too were slaves in the land of Egypt, I'll scream. The truth is the African-American experience and the Jewish-American experience historically have been fundamentally different. So that undermines an assumption, and it, and it forces white American Jews to reconsider. The second argument is sociology, which is related to history. Blacks and Jews both know what it is to be marginal, and two marginal communities are going to come together and fight together in solidarity. Except, uh, as Professor Goldstein pointed out, Jews didn't join the civil rights movement until they'd achieved whiteness. And for that reason, the sociology argument is undermined. And the third one is the Judaism religion argument. That is that Judaism demands social justice, that terdof, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And because Jews are Jews, they need to engage. Well, if that were the case, we should have found the Orthodox community in the lead in social justice work. In fact, they're all, all but absent. Conservative movement had Rabbi Heschel who was uh, all but perched by his own colleagues. It was the reform movement that had most involvement. But to be honest, most of the activists who were Jewish were not going down with Jewish organizations at all, which means we need to let go of that mythology and we need to take a new look at what was actually happening. To what extent does, like you say, letting go of that mythology help or push us to reevaluate the question of whether or not Jews are white or not. It forces us to see that Jews are white, that Jews have in the post-war period achieved whiteness, that while horrific anti-Semitic attacks are coming from time to time, they have not had a sociological impact on Jews as a group. And if anything, if we look at Jews as a group, Jews have done extraordinarily well. Once that is internalized, it then brings white Jews into full complicity in an institutionally racist society, which means even though we as a group are more liberal and progressive, and even though we as a group were more involved in civil rights, that that does not negate participation in and complicity in the system which has elevated white Jews over the generations. One thing that we do have to address here is the issue that, of course, as I've mentioned before, and as you also talk about in the book, we can say, okay, Jews are white. Well, that's a gross oversimplification in a lot of ways, because even if many Ashkenazi Jews can pass as white, there are so many other Jews, including Jews of color, converts, some of whom come from the African-American community, who certainly cannot pass as white. So when we talk about this question of whether or not Jews are white and so on. And when we look at this history of black Jewish relations, how is it that the growing diversity of the American Jewish community plays a part in that set of issues? 
Our best estimate is that 12 to 15 percent of American Jews identify as Jews of color. Um, this is uh, research by Stanford University professor Ari Kelman and his team. And um, I say the best we know because one thing that Professor Kelman learned is that demographic studies across the country in previous decades have not asked the questions to get at the answers of how we're even going to define Jews of color and then who would qualify as part of it. So I want to tell a story about the epilogue of the Black Power book, because the book was finished uh, and I needed to write an epilogue. And I was having lunch with Ilana Kaufman. Ilana Kaufman is the founder and president of the Jews of Color Initiative. Ilana is an African-American Jewish woman. And I was very excited about finishing the book. And, and Ilana pushed back. And she said to me, she said, Mark, you've written 200 pages on Blacks and Jews, but not a single page on a Black Jew. Well, I offered kind of a defensive response. Well, there weren't a whole lot of Black Jews. You know, and I, I did whatever I did. And Alana pushed back again to say, you wrote in your book that when Jews thought that they were being Jewish, they were really being American and really being 60s and really following black power. You know, that was the argument. Rather than having a nationalist lens on your argument, what if you put a racial lens on it? If you went through every one of your chapters and asked the question, did this history happen because Jews were white? how much would that change your thesis? And she was right on. And in fact, what I did in the epilogue is, you know, self-critiqued the book on that grounds and said, you know, the next version in the historiography has to be from the perspective of Black Jews so that we can understand what I didn't get through my own implicit bias and implicit assumptions. In fact, what Alana taught me, the phrase Black Jewish relations itself is problematic because you're putting Blacks and Jews on opposite sides. And if you're Black and Jewish, where do you fit in that relationship? So in essence, from the most fundamental level of the words we use to describe this history, we are erasing Black Jews. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, which again, it underscores the complexity of the set of issues. Whether, you know, for lack of a better term, we're talking about Black-Jewish relations, whether we're talking about Jewish whiteness, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism, it's one thing to talk about a group of people as a whole, but in reality, all of these groups, however we define them, are made up of individuals, all of whom experience things differently. That's correct. At the most fundamental level, it is humanity, because these are people. On the next level up, looking at our Jewish community, which is diverse and has been diverse and is becoming more and more diverse, it's now about the systemic ways in which Jewish organizations have been made in a white-centric way, which has been um, very uninviting, if not on occasion threatening to Jews of color to, to enter that space. And I think this is the moment where the white Jewish community is in terms of racial reckoning. Yeah, I mean, I think that the rise of anti-Semitism or the resurgence of anti-Semitic acts and violence within the past couple of years, it offers a certain retrenchment to the idea that Jews are not white because Jews can point to things like the attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh or any number of other things, especially, for instance, uh, attacks on ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, in New York, and say, look, you know, Jews are persecuted, Jews are oppressed as well. So part of what I'm just trying to say is that this complex issue about how the history is received, how people understand themselves, how people try to situate the recent events is complex, it's only getting more complex, 
But I think that part of what is important about your book and part of what's important about this conversation, particularly about Jews and whiteness, is that this history of the civil rights movement and then the supposed break between the black power movement and Jewish identity politics, in many ways it continues, right? And especially when we look within the last couple of years, uh, some Jews and Jewish organizations have attacked rising politicians, figures like Ilhan Omar, about criticism of Israel, uh, the use of anti-Semitic images, uh, and so on. And so I think part of what's important about this conversation and why I think it's an important conversation to have is that it's not just a question of whether or not Jews are white, but it has to do with whether or not Jews are perceived as white by non-Jews, particularly by black people. You know, I mentioned, for instance, before this very complicated issue of Israel uh, and the Palestinians. You know, the, I have to say, Stephen Miller doesn't help here you know, in this respect where Jews can be perceived as part of the, the systemic oppression or as the instigators of systemic oppression and violence you know, in the U.S. as well as elsewhere. I guess part of what I'm thinking about here is that when we look at this question of the history of Jews, the civil rights movement, and black power, the broader question of whether or not Jews are white or benefit from whiteness, whether or not Jews are perceived as white, also the complex issue of Jews of color that, as you said, throws a wrench into this entire conversation. How do you think that the history of that you engage with in the book and in your research can help us to understand the tensions within this entire dynamic of Jews and whiteness and you know, tensions between Jews and black people in the U.S., particularly over Israel and other things? First, I need to caution us and caution myself against the, the term black anti-Semitism and notions of black anti-Semitism, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement, Louis Farrakhan, Ilan Omar, and others. It's very big in the news. Uh, and for this, I turn to Evan Trailer. Evan Trailer is a, is a brand new first-year rabbinic student now at the Hebrew Union College, and he has an excellent piece to his uh, white Jewish friends on, on why we shouldn't use the phrase uh, black anti-Semitism. Uh, I was on a panel with uh, Eric Ward, um, a famed civil rights activist in the African-American community. And when presented with this question, he said that the root cause of anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism in each and every case. There's anti-Semitism in the African-American community. There's anti-Semitism in white Christians. There's lots of anti-Semitism in lots of different places. The challenge and the problem is when we begin assigning group status to prejudice at all, because I think we shouldn't be assigning group status traits. And certainly, if we're going to do it to one group, we should do it to, to all groups. It gets to a deeper question. Will the rise of anti-Semitism in contemporary period bring an alliance between white Jews and African Americans closer or farther apart? And there's an argument for both. I'll start with the together. White supremacists are the forces acting in this country to promote racism and systemic racism. White supremacists are also the leaders in anti-Semitism. Therefore, we actually have a moment where white Jews and black Americans are facing a common threat from the same enemy. And unlike the 1950s and 60s, when we actually had a division or a split in the, in the sociological historical experiences, now we actually have them together. And that is an opportunity where I think white Jews can sit next to black Americans and say, we are both being killed by white supremacists and we will be together. The more challenging part is the other piece of your question, which is 
in order to say that, there is an acknowledgement that Jews are enjoying the privilege of whiteness and that that has created a different historical experience for American Jews than for Black Americans, sociologically speaking. And therefore, there would be a resistance to find allyship in Black Lives Matter for fear that that would imply Jews Jewish whiteness. And if you're not willing to say that, it's maybe harder for you to find yourself in solidarity. I think if I can jump on that for a second, I think the challenge from a Jewish perspective is, again, how do Jews understand themselves as a community, institutionally, as individuals? Do Jews see themselves as part and parcel of systemic racism or do they see themselves as oppressed? Now, those two things are not necessarily 100% mutually exclusive from each other, though I would argue personally that to a large extent they are. It is possible to both be oppressors and oppressed at the same time. But I think that for many Jews, particularly, I think, people who don't necessarily have the historical frameworks to think through it, there's a certain crutch within the Jewish community. Anti-Semitism presents it, you know, the idea of Jews being persecuted on all sides. And this is where this quote-unquote black anti-Semitism plays into it, in as much as for some Jews— and here I'm thinking about people like Barry Weiss, for instance, in her uh, sort of argument about anti-Semitism on all sides, right? In, in her book, you know, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, it's really about the idea that you have anti-Semitism from the right and also anti-Semitism from the left. Anti-Semitism coming from white supremacy and also anti-Semitism coming from you know, the identity politics of the left, anti-Israel folks, etc. And I think that this is a comforting idea to many Jews, right? Because it's, you know, it fits into a so-called lacrimose history or lacrimose self-conception of Jewishness. You know, the Jews have always been oppressed. Jews are always confronted by, you know, anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism. Uh, that's the way it always has been. That's the way that it always will be, etc. And as I said, I think this presents a crutch to many Jews who want to understand themselves as oppressed. And therefore, it makes it very difficult for people to engage with things like Black Lives Matter, even if they really want to, because they insist that they are oppressed or that they are being attacked by anti-Semitism. This is at the heart of myth-making, and this is where our own personal identities are informed by the way we choose to view Jewish history. And the lacrimose view really does encourage us to create an historical memory rooted in the idea that Jews are victims and only victims, when in fact, it's true, I think, across racial and ethnic and gender groups, that all of us in some ways are victims and all of us in some ways are victimizers. Since racial status is socially defined and fluid, it is constantly changing in lots of different ways. So I am less concerned about those who see complexities in the fact that all of this can be happening at the same time. And I, as a scholar, grow more concerned if anybody settles into a singular understanding of what a group is or isn't based upon any, any single factor. We only have a few minutes left, so I, I want to try to bring us towards a conclusion to this conversation, which, of course, I feel like we could go on for quite a long time um, with this set of issues, which, as we said, is incredibly complex. But what I want to ask is this, what has been the response that you get from people when you talk about these issues, whether you're speaking to your academic colleagues, to Jewish communities or Jewish, uh, Jewish organizations? And of course, you know, I'm sure you get different responses from those two different sets of audiences in particular, but what is the response that you get? I'll just point out 
one thing that you mentioned um, in the book, I think it was in the epilogue, where you mentioned a conversation that you had with uh, some HUC rabbinical students where you told them a bit about what you were doing in your research at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, at the rabbinical school there. Uh, And so you were talking with some folks there. And when you laid out your argument over a conversation, it did not go well, right? So basically what I'm saying is that it's one thing for us as two scholars, two academics to hash out some of these issues. But when you talk about it in the broader public, what happens in those kind of conversations? And what has the response been, um, particularly within the context of what's going on now as people are trying to make sense of uh, protests and you know, Black Lives Matter and you know, the legacy of civil rights and so on? The response to this book, I never imagined. And it's such a great question because the difference between my own consciousness when I wrote the book and then what happened when it came out is revealing and self-reflective of myself as a scholar and also, you know, as as a white male Jew. I was interested in the line between what's Jewish and what's American. That's why I wrote the book. And I thought that that was the book that I wrote. I figured based upon that story I told of doing a lot of my research at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati and hanging out with my friends who were rabbinic students there, they didn't like my thesis as I was reinventing the history that they, like me, had learned growing up. I figured that the book would be received as a challenge by my peer group, you know, in in organized Jewish life. And I wanted to, to offer appreciation to Leah Danella. Leah Danella is an editor now on the NPR podcast called Code Switch. And she reached out even before the book came out, to say that uh, she wanted to, to talk about the book. And she did a blog for it on the podcast. And what happened was members of the Jews of Color community reached out to me in ways that I did not expect and I did not imagine. The feedback that I got was that the story I was telling that was so new to me and new to my HUC friends was very old to them. And in fact, they had known it and seen it their entire lives, and they appreciated that finally a book got written about it. White Jewish leftists reached out, and they liked the book. I appreciated the support. I also found it a bit curious because I didn't write the book to appeal to white Jewish leftists. If anything, I found it deeply ironic that the almost all-white male senior leadership of national Jewish organizations was understanding systemic racism And they were the ones who were publicizing it at a time that nobody was listening. In terms of pushback and critique of the book, it it came in in several, I think, well-founded places. First was Ilana Kaufman's critique that I wrote a book all about white people. And the book was called Black Power Jewish Politics and the way in which having a a racial sense um, would have deepened and made the book more complex. Second, it was mostly about men because I chose to focus on Jewish organizational leaders for reasons that I did, and of course that excluded women, it is not a gendered view. And that that story needs to be told, and there have been some really good uh, gendered stories uh, as well. And in terms of politically, you know, between those on the left and those on the right, I've mostly received some pushback on whether or not by saying what I said, I'm arguing that all the good stuff didn't happen. So I have to be careful, and I also want to make sure on this podcast, all the good stuff happened. It's absolutely true that white Jews were disproportionately involved in civil rights and risked their lives and sometimes gave their lives in order to achieve the goal. And that in academic history, 
when we deepen and make more complex the story, doesn't say that the earlier versions didn't happen. It just says that we want to look at it in a more sophisticated way. After having written this book, what do you think is the biggest takeaway here? You know, we've talked about why the history matters for understanding, for instance, parts of the civil rights movement, for understanding the American Jewish context, uh, American Jewish culture. But of course, you think this set of issues matters because you, you dedicated years of your life you know, doing research, writing the book, and so on. So when we think about this entire conversation, what do you think is the biggest takeaway here from the book and from the set of issues about Jewish whiteness, Jewish allyship, the complexity of, of Black-Jewish relations, if we want to call it that, you know, for the lack of a better term? You know, what's the big takeaway here for yourself, for your students, and for listeners? By redefining the split between Blacks and Jews in the mid-1950s, we can actually create a pathway for a new Black-Jewish alliance in the contemporary period, which is to say, if our historical memory was rooted in mythology, it's not going to be actually helpful today in confronting the challenges we face. When we understand that a lot of these insights about systemic racism were well-known in the 50s, that there was white Jewish support and advocacy for Black power in the mid-60s, that there was a lot of borrowing by Jewish organizations from Black power for Jewish empowerment, and the sense of what is the best role for white Jews to act as allies, now that they know what happened over these previous 50 years, we're actually creating an opportunity that the split itself comes back together in a new, better, more healthy, and effective way. Well, one can only hope. Thank you so much, Mark. I think this has been a really interesting and also a very challenging conversation, but I'm really glad that we had it. And thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And thanks to you for listening in. I hope that if you found this conversation interesting and engaging, that you'll subscribe to the podcast at jewishhistory.fm slash subscribe, and that you'll share the podcast with a friend. As I mentioned before, we've got a great lineup of people coming up, joining us on the podcast. So thanks for listening in. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.